Thank you for tuning in to the sermon podcast from Redeeming Hope. We exist as a family of faith that follows Jesus and helps others find him by living all of life as missionaries of hope. If you want more information about our church or would like to support our ministry, go to our website at redeeminghope.org. Please enjoy the sermon podcast. Now today, as we begin, uh, I want to ask you a question that I'm fairly certain I know the answer to. Have you ever tried to kick a bad habit and just failed at it? You ever tried to stop doing something and you just couldn't stop doing something? Or have you ever tried to embrace a healthy habit, but struggled to consistently embrace that healthy habit? So have you tried to not do certain things or have you tried to do certain things and just failed at doing what you know that you should be doing? Well, to be quite honest, I think we all have that experience, and I'll tell you one of those experiences for me. Um, I've experienced this quite recently, as of just a few days ago. Um, I uh, have, have been on a, a journey of health over the past few years, and by God's grace, I've had the opportunity to lose about 140 pounds. And I was in a pretty consistent rhythm of working out till about uh, three months ago. And because we were traveling and some other things came up, I stopped going to the gym. And this past Friday, I really wanted to get back into it again, right? So I really wanted to go back to the gym. But Friday morning, I was so frustrated. It was really frustrating going to the gym. I was looking for my gym bag. So in my gym bag, I had like a a, a little record, a little notepad of all of the workouts that I did. And so I could flip back and see where I was with the weights. And then I would just kind of copy that for the current day that I was working out. And that would be kind of my guide, my workout guide. Well, guess what? I couldn't find my workout bag. I couldn't find my workout log. I couldn't find my favorite pair of headphones that I use while I'm jogging on the treadmill. I couldn't find my favorite water bottle that I enjoy using. And I was just genuinely frustrated. Now, I got to the Clarksville area YMCA, which is where I work out. And so I got to the YMCA, and I knew that I wasn't going to be as far as I was three months ago. But I also was a little bummed because I was a little bit farther back than I anticipated. And I was a lot more sore with a lot less weights after my workout. And so I was, to be quite honest, I was, I was really feeling frustrated. I did enjoy the workout, trust me. By the end of it, I was feeling good. I was feeling the endorphins. But in the thick of the process and leading up to it, I was quite frustrated. And to be quite honest, uh, I, I was feeling a little guilt. I was feeling a little shame. I was like, man, I really wish I wasn't I wasn't so inconsistent with this the past three months. Man, I really wish I was doing better with this. I really wish I would have been more on my grind and more disciplined. And so here's the thing. I think we all do bad things and we struggle not to do them, right? And I think we all struggle to sustain good things. I think we all struggle to do good things and to sustain the change to doing good things. And sometimes it feels hopeless, doesn't it? And so the question that I have for us today, and I want us to explore, is how do we change and how do we create lasting change in our lives? And when we look to the world around us, the narrative of the world around us tells us that there's a certain way that we can we can meet the standards, that we can change. And I believe that there's two different ways the world, that the narrative of the world or the story of the world tells us that we can change. The first is that we can create our own standards, then of course we can meet them, right? That of course we can meet the change if we're already doing the change, right? So I can start walking down the road and say, man, my goal is to walk while I'm walking. And then guess what? I'm already doing it. 
But then when I stop walking, I can say, you know what? My goal is not to walk anymore. And then guess what? I'm not walking. I'm meeting my goal. This is called relativism. And really what it gets to the core of, it says, I'm good how I am. And I can accept really the terrible consequences of my addictions and the terrible consequences of my actions. Because guess what? I'm doing what I want and I am making the choice myself. Right, that's what kind of the relativism says. And what happens is when we fail, that we really kind of flaunt it. If, if you're on the relativism side, we really flaunt it. We relish in it because I'm just doing me. So if I'm just doing me and I'm kind of following my own rules, the Bible actually calls us making a law unto ourselves. We're making a law within ourselves that we're already following. And so we just say, you know what? If I want to, if I want to do this action today that's really harmful to me, then I'm just going to say, that's good for me, and I want to do it. But then the next day, if I, I want to change that, then I'll just say, yeah, I want to change it today. So again, it's just kind of relativistic, and it's constantly changing. That's one way the narrative of the world tells us that we can really change without really changing. A second way the narrative of the world around us tells us the change is that we have to grit our teeth, we have to buckle down, we have to try harder. And that is what we're calling religion. And there's typically four things that motivate kind of religious change. Fear, spite, guilt, and shame. Fear that says, I'm going to lose so much if I continue doing this. Next is spite. I'll show others that I can overcome this, right? So I'm just going to do it so I can prove myself to others. There's guilt that says, I'm doing terrible things and I need to stop. So that's focused on our actions. And then there's shame, which is I'm a terrible person and I need to change. That's focused on our personhood, right? And here's the deal. All of these things motivate us to try to grit and bear down and say, I just got to work harder to make these changes and sustain these changes, but that never works. And when we do fail, what we have to do is we have to lie and hide it right? Because then we can't really be honest because we haven't followed the rules and there's no grace for us when we don't follow the rules. But none of these things work. They really don't work. Why? Because here's the deal. Our core operating system as humans, we were not made to operate by making our own rules. Because guess what? They're going to constantly change because we constantly change. It's like me saying when I'm walking, the rule is then I want to walk. And when I stop, I say, well, I want to stop walking, right? Well, we're constantly changing, which means that there's no objective truth in our life and our life is just thrown to the whirlwind of whatever we want to do. So relativism just doesn't work for the long haul. But we're also, our core operating system is not meant to operate by forcing ourselves to change because guess what? The motivation doesn't sustain the change. The motivation doesn't last, and we're going to get into looking at that later, but the motivation doesn't sustain the change. So the question is, really, how are we made to change? How can we be truly transformed? And what I think we're going to look at over the next few minutes, what I hope that, that you get to, is that grace is what transforms us, and grace is what trains us towards real, lasting change. Look with me at Titus 2, starting in verse 11. This is our text for the day. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ 
who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. What we see is that we are saved by Jesus and we're saved by Jesus for a purpose. We're saved by Jesus to be redeemed from lawlessness to embrace a life of godliness that's purified for community and that's zealous for good work. So we're going to look at three points today as it relates to this idea of grace being the core motivator for us to change. We're going to see that grace saves us, that grace trains us to reject the world's story, and how grace trains us to embrace God's story. So let's begin by looking how grace saves us. Titus 2 starting in verse 11. It says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. My friends, God's grace is his undeserved, unearned favor. And we looked at this a number of months ago. We actually did a whole series called Words of Grace, where we went through key words of the Bible. And one of those words was, of course, grace, because that's a word of grace, and the word is grace. And actually, the whole series was talking about God's favor towards us. So this is our definition of grace from about a year ago. Grace is the undeserved, unearned favor of God the Father that secures salvation for his people in Jesus and is used by the Holy Spirit to produce an entirely new way of living. You see, what's so beautiful about this idea of God's grace saving us is that our works don't motivate God the Father to send Jesus to save us. It's only his undeserved, unearned favor towards us to save us when we are helpless. It's not dependent on our actions. It's actually dependent on God's character. And the Bible says that God's character is unchanging. Look with me at Ephesians 1, 7 to 8 to notice how this idea of grace and salvation connect together. In him, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. According to how? According to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. We are lavished with the grace of God. God's grace appeared in Jesus and it resulted in our salvation. But my friends, I want to spend so little time on this because this is just the beginning of God's grace and how God's grace is in our life. So God's grace has appeared. It has motivated God the Father to send Jesus to save us. And then God's grace is used by the Holy Spirit to produce a new way of living. And so we see that God, first, that God's grace saves us. It's only by his inerrant inherent personal character of grace, his natural inclination to show favor to people that do not deserve favor. That's the only thing that has motivated Jesus to come on the scene and to buy us back from brokenness and to save us and to forgive us. But then we see that God's grace trains us to reject the world's story. Titus 2, starting in verse 12, it says, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passion. So it says his grace has appeared, bringing salvation, and his grace also trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passion. So what we see is that grace is like our personal trainer. And we see that um, when we we pull a look back, we look at sin, we look at brokenness. What we see is that there's one sin underneath all the other sins in our life, all the other addictions, all the other brokenness, all the other lies that we tell ourselves. There's just one core sin, is that we are not believing the good news of grace. 
You see, we can understand the gospel to a degree that we become a Christian, right? So we can embrace, we can embrace the principle of grace with joy. God gives us undeserved, unearned favor, and as we accept that and we give our lives to Christ, he saves us, right? But here's the deal. The principle of how our heart works does not automatically change when you become a Christian. We actually have to learn this grace over an entire lifetime to reject the world's story. So we can understand God's grace enough to become a Christian, to pass the threshold, to hear, believe, and obey the message of Jesus by making Jesus Lord over our life. So we can understand that God's grace saves us, but we can actually live an entire Christian life without that grace ever actually changing us. And so there's actually really hard work in the life of the Christian to learn grace over a lifetime and what that means. So even after we become a Christian, we need the gospel of grace. And at its core, and at our core, we will still act, our core operating system defaults to think that if I obey, then I will be loved. If I obey, then I will be loved. And if I don't obey, then I'm not loved. If I don't obey, I'm not accepted. That's the core operating system of our heart that wants to go back to its default, even for the Christian. But my friends, the gospel, the good news of Jesus doesn't just save you, but God's grace actually transforms you as you more deeply believe and you more deeply accept, you more deeply embrace, you more deeply enjoy his grace in every part of your life. So I want you to think about your life like a pie chart. Okay? And so there's certain areas of your life that is easy for grace to go to. And there's certain areas of your life, like areas of a pie chart, where it's more difficult for grace to come to. Now, for me, it's really easy for me to believe that I'm loved, forgiven, and free. Just kind of in general, I just say, okay, God loves me. He accepts me. It's not, it's not hard for me to, to believe that. But it's actually really, really hard for me to believe that I am loved, forgiven, and free when I am failing at my job or I'm not successful at my job. And so with my job, with that pie chart, it's really easy for me to believe that when maybe I'm unkind to someone or I'm mean to someone or I say the wrong thing. It's really easy for me to say, you know what? I'm loved, I'm accepted, I'm free, I acknowledge it, I ask for forgiveness, I move on. But if I fail, if I fail to get back to someone, for instance, um, uh, I'll tell you an example. Two weeks ago, I was coming back from a missions trip to Africa and I was messaging someone in our city that I wanted to meet with. And I said, hey, can you meet on Wednesday? And I had included the date, um, which was actually this past week. So it was like two weeks ahead. And we were messaging back and forth and something got lost in translation. And I was still actually traveling. And he messaged me and said, hey, are you showing up to our meeting today? Well, he had thought it was one Wednesday and I thought it was the following Wednesday. Well, I felt terrible about that. I like beat myself up about it. I was really concerned about how that would make me look in front of this person. I was very apologetic. And, and, and the man was very gracious to me. He was very kind. It wasn't a big deal, but it was a really big deal to me. So I do feel like in that moment, I was struggling to receive the grace of Jesus that I'm loved, forgiven, and free when I failed at setting up this appointment because that made me look bad. And then I think about what does that look like on our church and all these other things begin to cascade. What is the core problem? I'm not believing the gospel. 
I'm not believing that God, the good news of God's grace, that he saved me, that he's anticipated that, that I was going to have that miss in those emails. He anticipated that I wasn't going to show up to this meeting in which this person was expecting me to show up. He already knew it, anticipated it, and I am still loved and forgiven and free, even if I fail, even if I have a miss. Now, here's the deal. The world around us wants to embrace its own narrative on how to change, and it wants us to embrace the world's narrative. And this is what in the book of Titus it calls ungodliness and worldly passions. So part of what the world wants us to embrace is doing what I want. And that goes back to this idea of relativism that we talked about a few minutes ago. And it essentially says that saying what I want is the best that I'm going to do what I want, and I'm going to make choices that might harm me or harm others, but as long as I perceive that I'm in control, as long as I perceive that I'm the one making the decision, as long as it feels right to me, then it's right. Well, here's the problem. That doesn't work because it often hurts others. And when we fail or we hurt others, we kind of flaunt it. We relish in it. We say, I'm doing me. I'm owning it. It's my choice. And so that's really relativism. That says there's no absolute truth, that I'm just making a law unto myself. I'm making a law in my own heart to follow, and then I can break that law at any, that law at any time because I'll just change it, right? I'll just change the law. I add an addendum to it with whatever I'm feeling in the moment. Well, that's just absolute chaos. That's living life in absolute, absolute chaos that's completely self-focused and that rejects absolute truth. But there's actually another way is that changing for the wrong reasons is equally bad. So trying to, do good, trying to do good things for the wrong reasons is just as bad as doing bad things. And this is this idea of religion. And religion t- tells us, really, there's four key motivations for why we try to change um, as it relates to religion. Fear that I'm going to lose so much if I do this. Spite to show others that I can conquer and overcome. Guilt, I'm doing terrible things and I need to stop. And shame, I'm a terrible person and I need to change. And what happens is when we fail at these things, what we have to do is we have to lie. We have to hide it so that other people still think we're doing the right things, right? But here's the deal. If you look at fear as the motivator, here's the problem. This is why it doesn't last. This is why the following the way of the world and the motivations of the world to change, especially as it relates to religion, it won't sustain. Because for instance, if you look at fear as the motivator, when the immediate fear, when the immediate consequence of your actions is gone, you're going to lose motivation. So if your marriage is on the rocks and you've been really mean to your spouse, right? And the threat of them leaving is on the table, you're going to try to be really nice to them. But guess what? If there's not a threat of them leaving, then you'll be able to drift right back into saying unkind things to them because the fear is not a lasting motivator. Next, if you look to spite as your motivation, it doesn't work because when you prove yourself, right? When you grit your teeth, when you win the argument, you say, yeah, I can overcome this myself. Then what happens is you go right back into the brokenness, right? Because you've proven your point. So spite works really well but it works really in short terms. It doesn't have any lasting change. If you look to guilt as your motivator, saying, man, I'm doing bad things and I don't want to do bad things anymore. What'll happen is when you stop doing those bad things, you're going to be really prideful. And then you're going to turn to other bad things to indulge your desires, right? So you're just going to trade one bad thing for another because then you'll just go to something else that maybe you won't feel as guilty. 
And really, and this is the last one, if you turn to shame as a motivator, shame is just the worst one because every one of us experiences shame in some way, shape, or form. Shame is just a terrible motivator because it eats you up inside, right? You'll be in despair because you'll look at your outward actions and you expect it to change your inward heart. You say, well, if I do the right things, then maybe I will be a different person. And really what happens is really depressing. It's really hard because then you'll turn when it doesn't work, right? Because it never works. Our outward actions never change our inward heart. And then you'll turn even deeper into your brokenness. You'll turn deeper into the addiction. You'll turn deeper into those things to numb yourself because you're still feeling that shame. But my friends, God gives us a better way to change. And it really is rooted in the beautiful truth of his grace and his salvation. Look with me at Romans 6, 6 to 7. We know that our old self was crucified with him, with Jesus, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Essentially, it's saying that when you choose to follow Jesus, it's like your old natural self, the old way of living, died with Jesus on the cross. And if you've died to the power of sin in your life, it has no hold on you. You're free from the power of sin in your life. And my friends, there is only one way to reject the world's story, and that's to see grace as your personal trainer. God's favor on us, even when we sin, um, says that we, what we do does not determine God's love for us. So God's grace, even when we sin, it says that what we do, our actions, do not determine God's love for us. Look with me at Romans 6.14, just a couple verses down. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. So we see that how do we lose, how does the power of sin get removed from us? How does the power of the world and the way the world wants us to be either towards relativism or religion, how, do we, are, how are we free from the power of these addictive patterns in our life? How are we free to change? Why? But when we recognize we're not under law, but under grace, a law says I've got to follow this to be okay. Grace says you don't have to do anything and you were made okay by Christ. And what this does is it begins to free us from having to change the rules. It frees us from relativism because we can still be okay and not meet the standards that God has for us. So we don't have to change the standards. We don't have to change the rules. We can say, hey, guess what? I'm a failure. We can be free to be open about that and we don't have to change the rules in order to be okay. That begins to free us because God loves us whether we follow the rules or not. But this also frees us from having to follow the rules. This frees us from religion. Why? Because we recognize we can't follow the rules ourselves. And we can begin to be honest with others when we fail to meet those standards. So we don't have to lie. We don't have to hide. We can say, hey, guess what? I can't follow the rules and I'm not going to have to hide it. But that's the thing is that that actually motivates us towards change. And this is the paradox of grace. Now remember, grace is God's undeserved, unearned favor. And it really begins to train us to acknowledge our true selves. It trains us to acknowledge our brokenness. It trains us to acknowledge our desperation while also believing that we're fully loved by God. Because what we do does not determine God's love for us. 
And that is part of how we reject the world's story. That's part of how we reject relativism and religion. And the love that we receive from God when we begin to receive his grace begins to change how we act. But there's a deeper question we have to ask. How? How does grace change how we act? How does grace truly help us reject ungodliness and worldly passions? Reject the story of the world? Because, this leads us to our third point, grace trains us to embrace God's story, to embrace a new narrative, to embrace a new way of living. Let me read kind of the whole passage again in light of this. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So acknowledging that we are broken, that we don't meet God's standards, and yet he still loves us, that means that we can begin to embrace God's undeserved unearned favor in our lives. And then my friends, when we embrace grace, we will begin to want to change. How will we want to change if we embrace grace? This is a good question. We need to ask this. Here's the deal. If God loves us, regardless of whether we follow the rules, we will want to embrace a life that brings us closer to that kind of God. That kind of God is appealing. He is attracting because that means he doesn't demand anything from us. So it's just like a father that says, you don't have to do anything for me in order for me to love you and for you to be a part of this family. Those types of families are the ones where the families serve each other the most. They're the ones that you're going to want to come home and cook a dinner for your dad who just loves you whether you cook dinner for him or not. Do you see how it's like compelling? It's attracting you. It's drawing you in. But not only that, here's the deal. When we begin to see that God's standards, his call for us, they're not for us to prove our love for him or to earn our love from him, but they're actually standards for our good. So that's what's beautiful about it. When we begin to see grace, then we also have to look at the standards of God. We have to look at why does God give us standards if even if we don't meet them, he'll still love us. Because our, the standards aren't for us to prove our love for God or earn love from God. It actually is because he loves us and the standards are actually make our lives better. When we follow these standards, our lives are better. Look with me at this. The first thing that I want us to look at as it relates to this idea of embracing God's story. God's story is embracing God's standards but it's all rooted in grace. So he says three things here. He says that, that grace trains us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. So the first thing is that God's grace leads us to live self-controlled lives. This means that we don't immediately follow our basest, natural, fleshly instincts, that we can actually have the ability to reject those instincts, which oftentimes are bad. We can have the ability to pull back and say, no, I don't have to take this drink. No, I don't have to consume these drugs. No, I don't have to look at this 
pornography. No, I don't have to be angry and be harsh with my wife or my children. I can be self-controlled. And being self-controlled is a better way to live because the people around you will thrive more when you're not impulsive and rash and just doing what you want to do. But when you live self-controlled life, it's better for you because you have less pain by the actions of by your actions of impulsiveness. And it's better for people around you because they don't have to live with the after effects of your impulsiveness, right? So being self-controlled benefits your life. It's a better way to live. Not only that, but being upright uh, and having upright lives means that we don't have to hide when we fail. We don't have to lie to prove ourselves. Being upright means to have character. It means to be honest. Then we can truly walk in confidence that who we are in all of its mess and brokenness is loved by God and worthy of love from other people. Now, isn't that a better way to live? Being honest about your brokenness, being honest about your struggles, being transparent about your addictions, being transparent about your failures, and then in that transparency, understanding God's grace, understanding God's story means that we can say, even in the midst of this mess, I'm still loved by God, and guess what? I'm still worthy of love. I still can get to receive love because God has made me worthy. You see how living an upright life is a better way of living? Not only that, he says living a godly life means that we're living like Jesus, and Jesus blessed others. Jesus had significant purpose. He had significant value for his life and significant meaning. He had a reason to wake up in the morning. He had a reason to wake up in the morning because he was on mission with his father. He was on mission to share the good news with others. Living a godly life means that other people are drawn to you. You have a vision. You have a value. You have purpose. You have meaning. My friends, this is a better way to live life, to live like Jesus, to have purpose and value that's outside of yourself and just following your basest instincts and then lying about it. This means that you can walk in godliness and holiness. God's story really is embracing God's standards out of grace. Another way of embracing God's story is God's story is embracing God's hope. You see, Jesus gave himself to buy us back from lawlessness and sin. When you live in lawlessness, when you live in sin and relativism or religion, it is just an incredible burden that doesn't have a lot of hope for the future because it all depends on what you're doing. But you see, this undeserved, this unearned favor, this grace means that he values us, that Jesus values us and wants our best. It means that we have a hope in what he's done, what he's doing, and what he will do that he has paid for you with the price of his life, that currently he is working in the life of the Christian to draw you deeper into grace, into living holy lives, into living godly lives, upright lives, lives that are rooted and centered in what God has done for us that is self-controlled. And then we have a hope that one day we will be fully restored. We will be fully healed, living without sin and pain and brokenness. And we also have a hope for today that when we fail, that we cannot outdo or undo his love for us. That actually God does the work as we surrender and submit to his grace for us. And guys, this is what makes Christianity both the easiest and the hardest faith to follow. It's easy because it says that we can give up working that it's not about your actions, right? But it's incredibly hard to do that because we have to realize it's our salvation is then not dependent on us and we can't be prideful and we can't be self-sufficient and live in grace. 
This means that we're giving grace to one another. We're receiving grace from one another. We're seeking to be on mission and inviting other people to be a part of this. He says we're a people, we're a family for God's possession. We're a people together in community receiving and responding to God's grace. And you cannot receive the fullness of God's grace without being a part of a local church and a local family. So we see not only that is God's story is purified for community, but God's story is zealous for good works. It says he's purifying a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Now let me be clear here. It's not about what you do. It's about who you are. And you don't change who you are. The only way that you change is by being in proximity to God. And when you get close to God, he changes who you are. And when who you are changes, what you do changes. And so you see, if you want to change your actions, don't focus on your actions, focus on your identity. Focus on seeing who you are and who God is. And when you see those two things come together, when you root your identity in Christ, when you receive his grace, it changes you on the inside, which then motivates a change on the outside. And we see this in 2 Corinthians 9.8, this balance of grace and change and good works. Look with me at 2 Corinthians 9.8. It says, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things... At all times, you may abound in every good work. I think he's making a point here that Jesus is all sufficient for you and that his grace towards you is enough. And the more you know that you are loved, accepted, and known by God in your weakness, the more that you will change. Here's the deal. When you know that you are loved, accepted, and known by God, you will reject fear and embrace faith. You reject the fear that's, and and what you can say, how you reject fear is you say, I can lose everything in my life and I can still be okay. Why? Because all I need is Christ. That's faith. You can reject fear and you can embrace faith. When you know, the more that you know that you are loved, accepted, and known by God in your weaknesses, you will reject spite and embrace spirit-empowered humility. So you'll reject spite. You'll be able to say, I don't need to prove myself to others. And then you'll be able to embrace a spirit-led humility. You can say, I'm a failure in and of myself, right? This is why I need Jesus. Not only that, but when you, when you, the more you know that you are loved, accepted, and known by God, you will reject guilt and embrace grace, right? You'll reject guilt. You can say, I can't follow the rules on my own. I can't do all the right things. And you'll be able to embrace grace that says, I received Jesus' perfect record of righteousness on my behalf. I'm receiving his record. So it rejects guilt. And finally, the more that you know that you are loved, accepted, and known by God in your weakness, the more you will reject shame and embrace security. You'll be able to reject shame that says, and you'll be able to say, I'm never going to be good enough. Absolutely. You can, you can freely accept that truth, but then you can embrace the security that says, Jesus makes me good enough no matter what I do. Do you see how walking in grace helps you reject religion, reject relativism, and embrace God's story that says, I, I don't have to walk in fear, I can walk in faith. I don't have to walk in spite, I can embrace spirit-led humility. I don't have to walk in guilt. I can embrace grace. And then I don't have to, 
I don't have to walk in shame and feel shame about who I am, but I can embrace the security that Jesus loves me and changes me. And Paul is talking about this, and he was struggling with a lot of things in 2 Corinthians 12. And, and he prayed to God and asked God to change his circumstances. And this is God's response. And God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And then Paul's response to Jesus is so crucial. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. Why? So that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. Why? For when I am weak, then I am strong. My friends, how do you change? How do you have lasting change? Here's the beauty of it. You give up. You throw up your hands. This is the beauty of the gospel. This is the beauty of grace. You submit and you surrender to God and you first must receive his grace. But it doesn't just end there. You then, as you receive his grace, you respond to his grace in obedience. But you're responding to his grace and obedience out of a new identity that's rooted in his undeserved, unearned favor for you. Not only that, but then you reproduce his grace in others by doing good works motivated by a good heart, a new heart that is secure in his grace. That's how you change. You receive his grace, you respond to it, and you reproduce it. That is what trains you to have lasting change. Now, if you look over the course of your life and you can't identify a specific moment we have heard, believed, and obeyed the message of Jesus by making him Lord over your life. My friends, I want to encourage you. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus yet, you can't save yourself, but you can be transformed. You can be transformed by God's grace. What do you need to do? You have to hear this message that it is only by God's grace that you are saved. It is not your intellect. It is not your abilities. It is not your good works. It is not your self-sufficiency that saves you. You have to hear it. You have to believe that it's true for you. Not just that God gives grace to people or Jesus died on the cross for everybody's sins, but you have to believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, that you need his sacrifice, that you need his grace. And not only that, but then you have to obey by making Jesus Lord over your life. And I know a lot of people that have heard this message that have believed that it's true, but haven't yet obeyed by making Jesus Lord over their life. And it shows. So I want to encourage you. Have you done this? Have you obeyed and made Jesus Lord and King and Master over your life? And you've seen a change as a result of that. I want to encourage you to do that today. Now, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you can look back over the course of your life and you see that stake in the ground, my friends, you will never have lasting change apart from God's beautiful training of grace. You will stumble, you will fall, and you will struggle to give up the alcohol, to give up the pornography, to give up the drugs, to give up the self-control. You'll struggle to give up the self-reliance, the lust after success, the worship of your children, the idolatry of work, or your own image. You will struggle with all of that until you submit and surrender to God's grace, his undeserved, unearned favor for you. You don't deserve it, you can't earn it, and you can never lose it.
And my friends, when God's undeserved, unearned favor comes into the darkest corners, into the darkest recesses of your life, you will begin to be honest. You'll begin to be open, humble. And that is the key to true, lasting change in your life. It is security. It is rooted in the confidence that you are loved, that you are forgiven, and that you are free because of God's grace, his undeserved, unearned favor for you. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to embrace, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. It's God's grace that saves us. It's grace that trains us to reject the world's story. And it's his grace that trains us to embrace his story that is rooted in his undeserved, unearned favor for you and me. Thank you for listening. We gather every Sunday at the Clarksville area YMCA. For more information, please go to our website at redeeminghope.org.